from the Columbia MFA program. Uh, you're listening to WKCR FM New York and WKCR HD1. Mm, you can listen to us at 89.9 on the dial in New York or online at wkcr.org. This is a pre-recorded show. And today I'm talking to John Kessler. Um, he is our professor, a sculptor, and kind of a founder of the Columbia MFA program. Hi, John. Hi, Stefan. Yeah, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yes and no. Uh, I, I got the job in 1994. The program had already been established. Um, uh -huh. I would say that I drastically changed it when I became the chair. Uh-huh, uh-huh, interesting. Yeah, and the song uh, which we just heard was Miles Davis, uh, On the Corner. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you told me you picked these songs because they reflect kind of parts of your life. And how is Miles Davis's On the Corner related to what you're doing and what you mm -hmm. have been doing? Yeah, uh, so... I grew up in Yonkers, New York, uh, a suburb of New York City, and um, I played guitar as a kid. I was good at art and music and not much else. And, um, and uh, I was in high school bands and um, jam bands and, you know, getting stones um, on homegrown weed and, and playing these long improvisations, sort of kind of like the, 
you know, Almond Brothers, Grateful Dead, Long Jams. And, and at a certain point I got into um, the kind of experiments that were going on in jazz, which were the sort of the fusion, electron, uh, electric jazz that was just beginning to happen in the sort of mid, you know, early mid seventies. And, um, and so On the Corner and Bitches Brew are two of my favorite Miles albums, which are also super, super important to me because I spent hours and hours and hours completely stoned listening to them. Um, and it was just, it was recently that I read the history of the making of those two albums. And um, what struck me so, so strongly about that was that, um, that Miles had these incredible musicians like John McLaughlin on guitar and Joe Zawinul on keys and uh, uh, Chick Corea's on that as well. He had like three keyboardists and, um, and that, that album is actually, it, it sounds like improvisation. Um, but really what it is, is a very incredibly well-constructed collage um, done by Tio Macero, who is the, um, uh, he was a musician too, but he was Miles's producer. And, um, and so to the point where a lot of the musicians would listen to Bitches Brewing on the Corner and not even like recognize the music, it was, it was really just a kind of Frankenstein um, uh, uh, construction of uh, the, of the improvisations that were just cut and pasted. And in back in those days, it was, you know, it was quarter inch tape that was being, you know, cut and, um, and taped together. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, I totally didn't know that. I mean, I, I listened to those albums a few times and it's totally, I don't know, it's, it's something completely new. I, I, I never yeah. knew that. Yeah, yeah. So, so this, this kind of collage thing, and it seems to me like so relevant um, even today. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that artists do a lot. And like the, this kind of attitude of like collaging everything you see around you together into like one big assemblage of like kind of controlled chaos or I don't know. Well, I would say it goes, I would say it goes beyond the the actual when, you know, like when you think of the history of collage, um, I would say it's actually even more, um, every artwork is an example of some sort of cut and paste of different histories, of different styles, of different different things that came before it. So, um, so yeah, but it, it was, it, it's incredibly important to me because I'm, I'm sort of, I, I'm, an, I'm a person who has been making, um, op, making sculptures with found objects since um, my first show in 1983 at Artist Space. So, um, so it's really important that, um, so the, the history of, of collage and assemblage is, is crucial to my work, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and you also mentioned uh, improvisation, that, that that's also something which is really important to you. So. What, how do you work with, uh, in, in sculpture, I mean, you need to kind of know what you're doing, but at the same time, you, you manage to like improvise and yeah. 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 So improvisation is something that I, 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 is one of the, the touchstones of my way of working. And I really do feel that I learned how to do that in my high school bands. And when I, 
when we would start to play, we might start out with a, sort of, you know, a loose skeleton of a song, maybe like three specific chords, uh, like a one, three, five blues or something. And then, and then um, expand from there, you know, and an hour later, you sort of wake up out of this dream of, of, of a, of a, of a deep jam. And I, 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 I find that my work when it's best is the result of a kind of improvisational um, uh, journey that, that I, as much as I like to, and I need to plan just in terms of having the right materials on hand and uh, so on and so forth. And I, you know, draw my sculptures in a sketchbook beforehand. Um, it's really the improvisational um, uh, voyage that, that is, is the most fulfilling to me. And so I have to leave pockets because my work is so technical. Um, I have to leave pockets of places where that kind of, you know, improvisation can actually be seen, you know, because it often is not, it's buried in the work and it doesn't necessarily look like you, you know, you had a kind of, let's say, you know, gestural expressionistic um, uh, moment or, um, space for it that you know and so so i i try to i try to create those pockets and um and that's that that and then i'm then i feel you know at the end that the pieces are um they're the most immediate they're the ones that feel like they're really freshest yeah yeah the yeah and you also use a lot of like uh, materials which are raw like you know like tape like like things like that so just like your 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 studio is in Williamsburg uh, uh -huh. yeah, yeah and and someone told me that that you came really early like to Williamsburg and okay. and you were there while when it still was what it, what we kind of know about something as history of <laughs> like Williamsburg uh -huh. so uh -huh. how was how was it back then when it was not like this because I I don't actually know I cannot imagine it yeah any different than this right so I had a I had the ex I had the experience in in Williamsburg that older artists had had in Tribeca and Soho which was you know going up to a landlord and saying hey I want to live in your factory and them saying really why would you want to do that well okay like you know you can have this enormous space and you know and i'll charge you nothing for it and um in 1980 i had done i was in the whitney program and um i was living in the east village in a small kind of shithole apartment and um and i knew that i needed a bigger space and a friend of mine that i went to undergraduate with um he was polish american and he grew up on north 7th street right near the subway near the l train and he told me about this neighborhood called williamsburg and he said you should really come out and check it out so it was really the it was the time that williamsburg was the factories were closing they were they were moving to uh one story loading like one story industrial parks in New Jersey or, you know, in places that were much more efficient for what they did. And, and so there were lots and lots of spaces. And I drew a circle around the, on the map around the, the, the L train, the Bedford Avenue stop. And I, I found like 20 spaces that day. And the building I settled on, the building I settled on is a two story small building that's connected to a larger building. The larger building was a functioning paint factory. And, um, 
And when I went in and I asked the landlord if I could live there, he really thought of me as like a night watchman. He was happy to have someone just watching over the property. And, um, but that said, the place was, you know, like a real bomb, it was bombed out. You know, it was like, it had no windows. It was, the roof was leaking, it was a wreck. And it took me um, two years to um, really sort of, you know, it, it took me about a year to make it habitable. And um, I didn't have heat for probably the first two years. Um, I would go around cutting up uh, wood pallets. I had a truck at the time and a chainsaw and I'd, I'd go out and I'd cut these wood pallets up, you know, that I'd find in the street and I'd, I'd feed the wood stove all night just to, so I wouldn't freeze. I mean, it was truly pioneering. Um, but it was, you know, it was, so Bedford Avenue for, um, you know, I'm sure most of the listeners know Williamsburg. Uh, Bedford Avenue was residential as it still is. And, um, and there were some stores, most of them just selling Polish products like, you know, kielbasa and cabbage. And, um, and then everything from Bedford to the river was pretty um, empty. It was, you know, some still functioning factories, but mostly empty factories and um and so it was da it was it was dangerous you know there were there were gangs um on the south side i'm on north 11th street so the north side was always a little bit chiller but um but yeah it was you know it took 10 years before i could find a new york times or you know get an espresso um <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, the, yeah, but that was that was forty years ago. I mean, it's crazy. It was nineteen eighty that I I moved to that building. And how did it progress from let's say then to the nineties? Like, what, what was when? How how was the nineties? And then how were the two thousands? For example, right. yeah, yeah, it was very quiet from nineteen eighty to nineteen ninety. There was very little movement, and then like around nineteen ninety, all of a sudden you started to to hear about the sort of underground parties. And there was a uh, company, there was a building called the Mustard Factory and or the Mustard Building, I forgot. And there were, there were these things that were happening underground. Um, most of the action at that point, honestly, was still in the city. Um, you know, if you want to go clubbing, you go into the city, you know, go to area or the, the, the Palladium or tier three, Danceteria, those, those sort of clubs you know, where you go see Talking Heads and Blondie or the Mud Club. Um, and then we, you know, come back to Williamsburg at night. But, but still, there was, there, was, there was underground stuff that was bubbling and brewing in Williamsburg. And, you know, there were, there were other artists that, that I knew. Chaim Steinbeck was there, not very far away, you know, from me. And there were, it was, it, 90s was still pretty quiet. And then it was really in the, in the 2000s that you started to see the changeover and the hipsters arrive to the point where I remember very well, we had our, um, we had our thesis show. So the thesis show at Columbia was always, um, before it was obviously at Lenfest, we had, the home was at the Fisher Landau Center in Queens. But before that, we would find spaces to do our thesis show. And one of those years we did a, um, I think it was the year of the graduates from 2000, no, be before 2000, like maybe 1999. The, the um, uh, Barnaby Furnace, Banks Violets, um, the Getty Saboni, that, that year of graduation, we did our, our thesis show in, in Williamsburg. 
And um, I remember going to walking from my studio to the thesis show in a in a sort of a sports coat, or maybe maybe it was even a suit for the for the thesis show. And some hipster drives by on his you know vintage bike and says. Um, go home, yuppie, or something like that. Yuppie, go home. And it was like, what the fuck? I've been here for, you know, 25 years. Fuck you, motherfucker. Um, so, yeah. So, so all of a sudden it became, you know, hipster, hipster land. And, um, um, but anyway, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the place that I feel extremely comfortable. It's the place that I spent the most time in New York City, in, in Williamsburg. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And and wait, can you tell us a bit? Um, when did you join the Columbia program? You said you got hired. How was it when you got hired? And what, like, how was the process of? You know, how 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 did it look when you came there? What was okay. the program like? Where was it? Uh, oh, it was it was in print. It was the the office was in Dodge, and the 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 studios were in Prentice and Watson. Um, so it was 1994, and um, the program had started back up in 1990. It, the program had existed before that. In fact, you know, someone, someone like Huma Baba and Jason Fox were graduates of the program before I was there. They graduated in like the late 80s, and then they they who was faculty then. Uh, who was faculty? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't know. I didn't know a single person when I, when, when I looked at the list of faculty. Um, but, but then they, they basically, they stopped the program because they, because they wanted to get rid of the faculty. So, so if, I think for two or three years, the program did not exist. And, um, and then they brought on someone named Alan Hacklin, who was, um, he had taught at Cal Arts. He had taught at Glassell um, in Houston, and they brought him in to to reignite, to restart the program. And um, and they hired me and Gregory in 1994. Um, they already had a faculty. Um, Archie Rand was there. Stuart Diamond was there. Riva Potoff was there. Um, this was it was it was an all white faculty. Um, mostly painters, to be honest. It was, I think there were like six, maybe five or six full-time painting faculty. Um, you know, so I was hired, I was very lucky to have gotten the job. I had net, I had no previous experience teaching or I had done some gigs in Europe, um, but I didn't have, I never had any full-time experience. So, yeah. so it was, I remember walking into my interview and seeing two other quite well-known, um, also white male sculptors there who were interviewing for the same job and um, uh, and they gave it to me miraculously. Um, so, so it was 1994 and, um, and I didn't become the chair till 2000. So for the first six years, I just, you know, I just, whatever, kept my head down, did my job, you know, kept thinking about, well, if I ran this, if I ran the circus, this is what I would do. And finally, I actually got a chance to do that, so. Yeah, yeah. So, so what did you do when you were chair? How was it? Was it hard? Uh, yes, it was. Did it was. It was hard. <laughs> um, it's uh, back then. There was very, very, very little compensation, monetary compensation for being chair. It was just something that was expected of you. So, um, so like you know, I think they gave you a couple. They gave they gave me a couple of thousand dollars just to be there instead of 
two days a week. I was there five days a week and most and many nights um, for for the events. I was I was really um, I must admit I was someone who sort of rethought every aspect of the program. So so the first thing I did I took the 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 program had tons and tons of people coming through as visiting critics, people who were just coming through once and um, and the students would have no relationship with them. It was just, you know, they would go through the studio and then uh, they'd all, the students would always complain that if they ever saw that person again, they wouldn't even, the person wouldn't remember who they were. And so I took most of those visits and I transformed that into the mentor program. And the mentor wow. program, you know, is, as you know, is, is to spend a week intensely with someone. Um, and most of the people who I chose at that point um, uh, were people who, uh, love teaching, but they would never have been able to have the time or the inclination to take a full-time job. So, so the mentor program was perfect for them. And the only person who's still working for us from the original crew is Mark Dion. Ah, yeah. so he was in the original crew. He was. And who was else original crew? Oh, Collier Shore, Matt Mulligan, um, Carol Dunham. Um, uh, Gene Silverthorne, Liam Gillick. Oh. Uh, I don't remember. I'm, I'm forgetting some, but uh, yeah, there were there were nine. Yeah, I know Liam Gillick. I think. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah, yeah, I know him. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he yeah. did it for years. Liam Liam did it for years, and then um, and then it was a change. Or I don't quite remember at at what point um, he left, but um, it just you know, whatever. You know, people burn out. I mean, it's 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 a tough it's 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 a really tough job. I mean, if you're going to do it well, it's um, it's very intense, and um, and not everyone can do it. I mean, we've had people who really thought they could do it or really wanted to be a mentor, and then we'd hire them, and then after you know one semester, they basically say, "I can't do this anymore." You know, it's 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 not easy. It's something we don't do as faculty, we don't spend all day with, um, with you guys for, for, you know, a whole week. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's very particular person who can do that anyway. So I did that. That was one of the things I did. The group critique classes was, was my, um, one of my initiatives. We didn't have a group. We, we barely had any group critiques. Um, they, they'd happen, but they'd happen on a very ad hoc basis. So we did that. Um, uh, we used to have mentorship between um, graduates and the undergraduate seniors. I don't know if they're still doing that. That was my initiative. Um, open studio, um, which is interesting. Um, a lot of students ask about that. That that happened my first year as chair. We had a student who asked, why don't we have open studio? So many of the other schools do. And and so we did it the first year and, um, and uh, it was really successful. And then we built it into the curriculum to do open studios so oh, yeah, that, yeah. yeah um oh lots of lots of stuff that that um um that um other stuff that i initiated that that some of which still exists other things like the gelman the gelman series i don't i i don't know how um uh how vibrant that is at this point but when i ran you know when i start i started the gelman series and um i just thought my God, this is crazy. We're in New York City. Why are why do we only have the situation where uh, artists are coming up and speaking to us at Val's when their studios are like you know like a subway 
right away. So I started the Gilman series where we would go to people's studios, um, a bunch of other stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. It yeah. seems like it's uh, it seems it seems for me like it's always there, but it's mm -hmm. obviously someone came up with it at, at some point. <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Maybe we could go to the next uh, song which you chose, okay. which is, and then uh, come back. So uh, we will listen to Fela Kuti, Water No Get Enemy, chosen by John Kessler, my guest. So we'll be back. <laughs> So here we are back with John Kessler and the song he chose uh, as his second choice was Fela Kuti, Water No Get Enemy, the famous Fela Kuti. So John, I heard you told me, <laughs> I heard from you <laughs> that you went to a Fela Kuti concert. 
once. Uh, yes. So yes. how 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 is how that is that possible? Okay. <laughs> how was that? Okay. Um, well, it's a bit of a long story. Let, let me see if I if I can do it in 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 a shorter way. Um, so it's as I told you, I grew up in Yonkers and um, in a you know a suburban a suburban home and you know a kind of a comfortable life and blah blah blah. I went to art school. I went to SUNY Purchase, which is also in Westchester, not very far away. And after two years of school, I realized that I really didn't have enough experiences to draw upon to be an artist, and or at least that was my feeling. And so, I took a leave of absence, and I, um, with a friend, um, went to Europe uh, with a backpack, and we went to we got to Spain. And um, it was really cold in, in uh, Madrid and we just kept going further south to until we, you know, hit some warm weather. And at that point we started seeing people who were coming up uh, from Morocco um, and them hearing their stories about Africa and, and uh, North Africa and, 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 um, and so we thought, okay, let's, let's do that. So we took the ferry to Morocco and then that led to getting a visa to, for Algeria. That led to a trip through the Sahara Desert. That led to going you know, into West Africa and the fist of Africa and Togo and Niger and Upper Volta. Mm-hmm. And, um, Anyway, I was away for two years total, and um, and I spent a year hitchhiking through Africa and really going very slowly. Um, sometimes staying in villages for like a month or two, and um, at a certain point, I in Togo, I got a, um, a I hitchhiked a ride on a freighter ship, um, and I was a and I I lied to them and said I could cook American food, and it was a Norwegian ship, and they brought me to Cameroon. And I spent a month in Cameroon and then like went around from Cameroon back to Nigeria. And in Nigeria, um, I was hitchhiking and I met uh, someone who worked for an oil company um, and he brought me to their the family home. And um, they had kids and the kid brought me to um, a club in Lagos and um, and the music was unfucking believable. It was just crazy. It was just you know like the the stage was full of singers and uh, women singers and uh, musicians, and then this really dynamic you know basically this guy you know singing in his underwear, um, and um, and it blew my mind. But it wasn't until years later that um, I heard the music again and asked about it and they said oh yeah this is uh Felicuti. and i and it, i put it together that i had been to the shrine and uh it was just because i i hadn't heard of fela um that i didn't really know that that was his club and you know the sort of the famous shrine and it was so it was a trip you know to um but I, but I saw lots of live music in Africa on that trip. You know, there'd be like in markets, there'd be incredible musicians just playing. And so it was, so, you know, talk about improvisation, that trip of two years of just like living by my wits, um, never paying for a place to, to sleep, um, you know, like literally just um, working when I needed money. And, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty crazy. I didn't speak to my parents for, um, you know, 
I think I called them like three times over a period of two years. I mean, my yeah, dad. Yeah, yeah. There was no phones and. Yeah, there were no, the phone, no, different. The phone, different. I mean, phone call like phone calls. If you wanted to make a phone call, you'd have to go to a post office and wait for like an hour while they set up the trunk call, and it was really, it was really crazy. So, so anyway, that was that's the story of of me going to the shrine, and um, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the way. I mean, I'm still. Uh, I still had uh, moments in my life where I didn't have phones, and I remember how it was like traveling. It's it's complete isolation. It's like complete. Like right now, I'm like isolated from my home, but I'm in full contact with all my friends and mm -hmm. everyone, and <laughs> I, I talk to everyone all the time. I I'm mm -hmm. not away from home, mm -hmm. but and and. I feel that I cannot kind of have a full experience even because of that. But being so like being in Africa, I cannot even imagine how crazy it is to go for two years. You were, so you were a student, you were like 18, 18 years old. It was 1976. I was 18, 19. Yeah. Oh my God. That's crazy. Yeah. So, and, I mean, it was pretty unusual for, you know, a kid, <laughs> a kid just, from Yonkers just doing that. I mean, probably, yeah. you know, my, I, I think my, my parents supported it, but, but the, the greater family, the uncles and aunts and stuff thought I was nuts, you know, and, and they, they also thought that I was running away from responsibility, but it was like, it was hard work. You know, it was like, I'd have to every, every night at a certain hour, I really have to start thinking about like where I was going to sleep, you know? And, and I, I told you this, that I ended up, I did end up in uh, Croatia in, um, sleeping in, in, in a, I went to Plivice, the, 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 the national park, but also, you know, having this amazing time in Zagreb, um, in, in just wow. the, in the park, you know, and just, I didn't have a tent. I was just sleeping in a sleeping bag, you know, under a tree, but. Do you remember uh, in what park? <laughs> Do you remember at least how it looked? Yeah, there were trees around. There was, was there very buildings? Green buildings uh, around or or like was it like in the center or a little bit like outside no it was in the center of town i remember that yeah okay i think i know which park is it's, it's yeah. behind the church okay no no it's really fun for me to uh -huh. like, uh -huh. make this like a connection uh between <laughs> fela kuti and zagreb and yonkers uh -huh. and you <laughs> And Williamsburg, it's a good yeah. circle. <laughs> yeah. So, so this kind of set the stage for your like art practice. What, uh, what do you think um, about this? What you said, like experience in life and art together. Do you think it matters? How, how, how much do you think that like this external, like world and experience of it and. Like how much do you think it it really matters for mm. for art? I was always thinking about it. Yeah, I don't. I, I can't say for you know for anyone else, but I could say for me that that what really um, struck me and what really impressed me on that trip was I spent a lot of time um, watching craftsmen, and I would spend lots and lots and lots of hours at blacksmith you know watching blacksmiths and watching stone carvers and watch going to markets and watching you know um uh bricklers fix um rubber taking rubber tires and make sandals out of them and um and so that i i 
completely believe is very, very crucial to, um, you know, seminal to the way I work and the way I think and, you know, working with my hands and lots of techniques and processes. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have that much experience making stuff before, um, before I left. Um, my father had a workshop in the basement and there were a bunch of tools in the basement and I, I, you know, whatever, I'd make stuff, but I wasn't really dedicated to the craft or I didn't, you know, I, I never spent that much time thinking about that or, or, or studying it or, or, you know, or yeah, or analyzing it, which, which I did on that trip. Um, and so, yeah. 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 So, so, so craft is really something that made you think about art and, and what was the art like at schools when you were studying there so so what how, how did it like switch when you saw like african craftsmen what did you have the comparison with what, what was going on at that time in yeah in your school? Well, I, I went to school so yeah so i started uh i started suny purchase in 1974 and that was really a kind of um very conceptual time um, where uh, it wasn't it, the, the, the term post studio, of course, was not really, you know, talked about, although Michael Asher was probably already teaching at Cal Arts, but my professors were by and large um, uh, uh, artists who, um, who were more conceptually based. And so, so it's, I didn't really learn how to do anything in school. Um, okay. And so, yeah, I, I learned how to talk about art. I learned how to analyze art. I learned how to critique art. But, um, but in terms of actual techniques, I, I learned very little. So, so it wasn't, it, all of that happened after my trip, after I graduated and I got out and I was building my place in Williamsburg and I built my own place. I built, I, I had a house painting company. I was, you know, I, I, I was learning how to do construction. I was learning how to do my electrical. I did my own electrical work in that building and my own gas lines and my own, um, uh, um, my plumbing, I did myself. So I, I really taught myself how to do everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's that's something. Yeah, it's kind of a reaction to. You also went to the Whitney program, which 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 is kind of conceptual too. So you have like, you managed to to kind of put this like craft into like conceptual mm -hmm. thinking, which is mm -hmm. yeah, which is kind of something which. Yeah, which is the thing to do actually, when you think about like, you know, a lot of craftsmen and like very craft dedicated artists sometimes lack the conceptual thinking and things like that. And exactly. Yeah. So I mean, listen, I I didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't really something that I um, that I sought out to do. It's just that. You know, I think people typically gravitate to the things that they're good at and that they're that make them happy. And for mm -hmm. me, I'm just that what makes me happy is having my hands on tools and um, and and manipulating materials. And so so, yeah. And so the fact that I was, you know, I was able to do that. But also there were some there were ideas behind the work. That was a that was a that was a that was a plus plus, I guess. Yeah. Did you do like classical drawing, like uh, nudes and stuff like that? Did you do drawings when you were like in Africa? No, 
I didn't. Um, yeah. I wasn't drawing. I, I, I had a pretty, um, I had one drawing teacher at SUNY Purchase who um, named Leonard Stokes, who was very, he, he had come from Yale um, and it was real observational drawing. And he was, he was a fantastic teacher. And we would basically draw um, cups with, you know, like there'd be a still life of cups and we were drawing ellipses for, you know, hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and um, it was great. It was, you know, very rigorous and great training. And um, I still, that's one of the, it's, it's one of the ways that I relax. There's um, uh, Will Cotton, the artist, um, every now and then um, has uh, a life drawing session and um, a bunch of people, the, sort of the people who you would expect to be there, you know, like, um, Inca Essenhai and, uh, and certainly, you know, someone like Will, who, you know, is a representational painter and, um, David Humphrey is often there, but, but, um, I go there, I'm, you know, I, I, I find it, I love it. I love, I love drawing the figure and, um, uh, you know, it just doesn't find its way into my practice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we can have the next song. Uh, which is David Byrne and Brian Eno and the song is called A Jasper Spirit
listening to WKCR FM New York and WKCR HD1. This is a pre-recorded show and a podcast uh, with Stepan. And uh, my guest is John Kessler. And this was David Byrne and Brian Eno. So what part of your life is this talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, yeah. This, is the, this is the early 80s. Uh, so... Uh, Talking Heads' first album was in 1977, and um, and then they they teamed up with Brian Eno at some point to do some pro- you know production on on uh, on an album. Uh, like every like it seems like every musician at some point teamed up with Brian Eno, and um, <laughs> and then they they produced this album, which is an album of um, music, but then with found snippets of sound, and the sounds um, according to David Byrne were sounds that he was he was grabbing from radio stations as he was traveling um, on tour with the Talking Heads. Um, and so this, this album in particular was the first time that I became fully aware of the, the sort of the enormous um, uh, library of, of, of sounds and sonic um, uh, surprises, which we now like think of as sampling. And um, so it was a really vibrant time where in the early 80s, um, as an artist, you sort of, you felt like there was this real blending of cultures and blending of, of um, you'd have, blonde, like Blondie did this too. She had, you know, she was integrating rap into her songs. You'd have these uh, amazing concerts at, um, there was a roller rink um Oh God, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but it's where uh, the, the first Hauser Worth Gallery was in New York. And it's, they, they, those, it was a concert venue and you'd have like Grandmaster Flash come down and, and play with like new wave bands. And, um, and essentially I was doing that in my work. I was making pieces that were, um, uh, that were homages to Chinese um, uh, Chinese rock gardens, Japanese temples, um, uh, ikebana, flower, Japanese flower arranging, um, and so I made all of these Asian-inspired works in the early '80s, and um, uh, and there was a show of those. Um, much quite a bit later um, in the '90s, actually, and that toured Europe. Um, but that was, you know, that it was just a very fertile time, and it was sort of a time when when artists were grabbing influences from all over. Mm, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And were, were there any hard feelings, like, hey, why did you take this <laughs> this song for me? This belongs to me, or something? Was there any, anything like that, or was it like a free, open, like community? Were people like proud that someone used their stuff and? Yeah, I think I think that happened later. I think that um, in the '90s it shifted, and there were more. Um, it there it became more problematic in terms of the just even the term cultural appropriation became uh, something that um, was named and was sort of understood as a kind of a uh, tendency and. Um, so there was a shift, which happened um, from the sort of the freedom of it of the 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 borrowing at the beginning to maybe more of a critique or an examination of it, um, you know, like like later on. Um, Is it because of money? Like because the profits started to be bigger later from art and kind of 
at that time, maybe when borrowing was not such a big deal, maybe it was not so profitable or something. Like, I'm just thinking that it has to do with... Well, that's interesting, Stefan, and I'm sure that um, that was the birth of intellectual property lawyers. Um, yeah. You know, yes, yes, um, certainly. Like, you know, and all of a sudden it became there became very strict rules about like, well, you can only have like five seconds of this baseline and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's true. Um, but it was more, I would say, at least what affected me um, in the way that um, the work, my work was viewed was that it was just, it was, it was just scrutinized in a different way. And it was just, you know, sort of, and this is, you know, I think as a culture, we're, you know, we're growing and evolving and looking at things, you know, differently and through it, you know, through different lenses. And, and, um, you know, I, I mean, the fact is, is that, that I was deeply, I wasn't just flippantly um, making, um, sticking Asian influences into the work. I was, I was real, I was studying Ikebana. I was studying, you know, I, I yeah, went to yeah, Japan yeah. and studied Japanese flower arranging. I was, I was, I, I did a extensive tour of the temples and like thinking about Japanese architecture and Chinese landscape painting. And so, so no, I was really trying to integrate those, those ideas into my, you know, Western, uh, work. And I, and I guess, you know, it wasn't until, it wasn't until the nineties really that I started to, pre, you know, show, sh you know, do my lectures at art schools and all of a sudden it became much more um, of a problem. And it was, you know, it was, it was seen as something that certainly that I had not been thinking about, you know, in the eighties when I made the work. And, and I, I, I guess I would still, you know, say that there is still a distinction and a, um, a difference between the sort of the, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the oppressor and a colonizing, um, you know, power, like, I mean, you know, if you think about, um, um, uh, oh God, why am I forgetting? Who's, who's the French painter who uh, did all the, the Orientalist um, Delacroix? If you think about like the Delacroix, you know, like exoticizing the, the Arab villages in Morocco, you know, I mean, that was a colony. And um, yeah. it's, it's, it was very, you know, yes, it's a very direct link to Edward Said's idea of Orientalism. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And how, like, you, you kind of survived, like, 40 years of art practice. And, I mean, that's really tough, especially being in New York where things shift like that, you know, where, where you have to view your work through, like, every 10 years you have to like reshift somehow how how do you uh, is it true that you 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 always have to kind of you know how how did you manage even to 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 survive this like shifts in 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 the art worlds and stuff do, yeah. did did you have to do that in some way like you know like change your work like change attitude change stuff according yeah. to yeah yeah well um I don't think it was external necessarily, but um, but listen, I, I've had my ups and downs, and um, so I was I was pretty. Um, things happened really quickly for me right out of the gate. I was you know showing, um, so I moved to Williamsburg in 1980. By 1983, I was already in a show at MoMA, um, and you know was picked up by a gallery. I was the first artist at, at Luring Augustine, which was a brand new gallery at the time, and. Um, 
you know, and, and they had lots of European connections and I was, you know, doing lots of stuff in, in, um, in Cologne and, um, and Paris and, and so on and so forth. So it was, it was, it, the eighties were very, very, um, you know, sort of like vibrant and, and successful time. And then, um, things really slowed down in the nineties. And by 94, when I got my job at Columbia, things had almost, um, I did a show in 1994 at Luring Augustine, and then I didn't show again in New York until uh, 10 years later in in 2004. So, so it was after I was chair and it was my last year as chair. And, Uh um, and I, you know, I had really, I I was still going to the studio, but I wasn't really happy with anything I was making. I was going through a total artistic block. And, um, and then the, and then 9-11 happened and the work really shifted after that and it became more political and, it, and I started integrating surveillance cameras and, and it started addressing much more political themes and the war in Iraq and, and, you know, and, all was, and that was my sort of my second wave, so to speak. I mean, it was, yeah, yeah. It was you know, I, a lot of people who discovered the work at that point didn't even know that I was an 80s artist. You know, they, they didn't know the work from before. And so... And, um, and so, yeah, it's really, um, it's really, uh, difficult to keep up, um, a long career just because, you know, like you realize your first show is very hard and then your second show is super, super hard because you've got to sort of outdo yourself from your first show. But what about your 40th show? What about your 50th show? How do you, how do you you sustain the sort of the, the energy? And some people, some people, I find have it easier because they're kind of chess players and they go very slowly between, you know, they, they sort of almost like you almost sort of imagine when the career unfolds that they've, they've, they've made very small moves in their life and they've changed the work in incremental ways, you know, and, um, and the, the collectors still understand the work and, you know, the, it's still recognizable. It still has, you know, it's still branded, so to speak. But then, then the the work that is very risky and you know is is often like not like that, where people make real seismic shifts, and um, and that's what you you kind of want. You want your it's like surfing. You you want the fucking big wave to to come along and to catch it, and to have that you know that moment in the studio which surprises you and just blows you away and that's you know so so the work now i've i've you know i didn't make an installation until the palace of 4am which was my after i became the after i stopped being the chair in 2005 that was what i did i i worked on an installation at ps1 and that traveled to europe and blah 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 and then i did installations for the next probably six seven eight years and now i'm making much more intimate, quiet pieces that are sort of balancing acts made out of bronze and found objects. So, so I, you know, so, so getting back to your point, I don't, it didn't really come externally. Like, like there was this pressure to change my work. It just came from the internal need to stay alive in the studio and to, um, uh, and to excite, you know, to, to to be excited. Um, yeah, yeah, to be happy about your own stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, um, you know, I I don't want to cut away too much from uh, the songs because uh-huh. we 
we are coming to an end now because you picked really nice ones. So I just want to thank you uh, for this nice uh, conversation and for your songs and for your images, which we will see in the poster. And uh, so the last song is, can you say? Yes, the last yes. song is uh, Where or When. And it's a, um, it's a song that's uh, performed by me and my uh, current band, which is John Miller, uh, the artist who teaches at Barnard, uh, or Rosenberg, um, uh, Bill Kamoski, and um, um, uh, Dan Walworth on drums. And, um, and it's, a, it's a show tune. It's, it comes from a, a Broadway show called Babes in Arms. And uh, it was written by Richard Rogers, who some of you might know from Rogers and Hammerstein or Rogers and Hart. And, um, and so where I am right now, I'm sitting in my country home, which has been in my family for five generations. And it used to be a Jewish country club. It used to be a Orschbelt hotel for, um, and this is where I grew up listening to um, uh, Frank Sinatra and um, uh, Mel Gourmet and Mel Torme and Tony Bennett and uh, Judy Garland and so so I was brought up on this kind of music and 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 I like to bring those show tunes which I find timeless into our um, our set. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. This is a good way to end our nice little podcast. And yeah, I just want to thank you and yeah, and thank everyone for listening. If you're listening all the time, thank you even more. And yeah, we'll be back next week. And this was really fun. Thank you, John. And have a good night. Thank you so much. Yeah, bye bye. Oh